So I'd like to talk to you tonight about um, turning mindfulness towards the activity of thought and of thinking. Um, I'd like to give a little bit of a setup before we go there, but just a sense of what we might talk about tonight and what we might do with mindfulness practice as we keep developing mindfulness practice, first with the body, then opening up to emotions and mental states, as we did this morning and today. And then actually turning mindfulness towards this activity of thinking. I want to back up and, uh, and say there, um, there are many motivations to come to a meditation retreat. And there are all the motivations you all had, plus all the motivations that have ever uh, had someone choose to come to a silent meditation retreat. And there are experiences looking for self-awareness, for calm, for peace, uh, to kind of alleviate suffering. Um, many motivations. And as we described the first night, or as we offered the first night, people ch- uh, shouted out what they were looking for. And then the actual retreat happens, and um, we all come with uh, some expectations. It'd be hard to make a choice this big without some expectations. And yet we have to relax those expectations to actually meet the retreat we're actually having and learn to have some faith and trust in what actually unfolds. And then in hindsight, we can see uh, often that the retreat that happened gave uh, benefits that we couldn't have imagined. And so sometimes you don't really understand the retreat that you're having until uh, weeks later, until months later. And yet we do try to evaluate it as we're going through it. We do try to see, is it working for me? Um, is it matching my expectations? Am I disappointed? Uh, or just what the hell is actually happening? <laughs> it's so different than the brochure. The brochure so... <laughs> the brochure, I saw five pictures of somebody looking very peaceful. <laughs> they seem to promise a lot of peace and still waiting for that to happen. By the way, I'm still waiting for that to happen too. <laughs> I've never felt as good as the brochure looks. <laughs> but back when I started this, is um, uh, close to 30 years ago, um, I was thinking like, how did I even hear about the first retreat? Because there weren't websites back then. There was a 19... 19- 89, it happened that a neighbor of mine had done an insight meditation retreat just like this one. And I was kind of casting about, I'd heard about meditation, I was in college. Um, my friends had done a meditation retreat and they said, oh my God, it's the most amazing thing I'd ever done, you have to try one. I was like, okay, yeah. And then I was kind of interested. I didn't really know one form of Buddhism from another, and it just so happened my neighbor um, had done that. And so I was talking to people, trying to figure out where I could go study meditation. Up came this neighbor and she had um, a catalog of insight meditation retreats. And I just picked the next one that was coming and went to it with very little knowledge about it. And I really didn't know what I was getting into. And I was a little bit suspicious of it, but willing to try it. But um, when they said, close your eyes, I was like, why? Very interesting, you want me to close my eyes. <laughs> I don't know you, and yet you want me to close my eyes. Every now and then I open my eyes, just like, why, why, what are you doing? <laughs> and I actually, you know, back then, uh, in this North American culture, this dominant North American culture, 
Buddhism and insight meditation was fairly new, and so I didn't know. And and I had this weird fear that somehow I was gonna someone was gonna sneak up behind me and uh, drug me and take me away somewhere. You know, that's just a little fear. But I was like, close my eyes. And I kept looking, like, when are they gonna sneak up? And then a couple of days in, when my back was hurting and I was bored, and I'm sure I was doing it wrong, it's like, oh, can't somebody sneak up behind me and, <laughs> and drag me away to somewhere else? Like, I'm ready for the cult. <laughs> Please, somebody help me with this monkey mind. But then, about uh, a couple of days in, I. I got my sea legs under me. I got a sense, okay, I see what I see what we're doing here. I don't totally understand it, but it seems to be a lot about sitting and walking and they seem to think the breath is extremely important and <laughs> and I am growing a little tired of all this thinking I'm doing. So it is kind of nice to be with my breath. I just can't be with it very often. And about the about the third or fourth day I began to feel the first little openings where it just wasn't like a, a waterfall of thought and this very faint breath somewhere. Um, started actually feeling like, oh, I'm actually feeling my breath, and I, I can see this thinking process. I'm finally gaining some perspective on what all this thought was and how much I had been swimming uh, for years in this realm of thought, being very thought-dominated. And I started feeling the first little openings of something other than being dominated by thought. And then as the days went on, a little bit more space opened up, a little bit more perspective opened up. And then some, some really beautiful insights started coming. So we call this uh, form of meditation mindfulness meditation, and sometimes we call it insight meditation. Because as we get more and more intimate with our experience, then we actually get to see what's happening in our minds with new perspective. And you've been in your mind, you've been in your body your whole life, but maybe not this steadily with this much support to actually see what's going on moment by moment. And it can be revelatory. I had been in myself for 21 years when I went on my first retreat, and I'd never really sunk into my experience to really see what was happening. And again, I was a kind of a skeptical person. And what I realized is that the teachers, even when they taught, they were not trying to get me to believe something they were asking me to look at my own experience and giving me interesting questions to ask about my own experience, but they are not actually, they are the first adults I had met that were teachers that were not trying to like teach me a whole philosophy that I had to learn from them. They just supported me, gave me good questions and some interesting techniques to do self-discovery. After my first retreat, <clears throat> I swore I would never do another one ever. Temple, do not do this to yourself. It's way too painful. It's way too challenging. Um, and I heard people had done a second retreat. It's like, wow, who does a second one of these? <laughs> and then I heard people did three-month retreats. I was like, my jaw dropped. I was like, you're kidding me. You do that for three months? And I heard people had done one-year retreats. And I'm like, mind blown. <laughs> But then I left the retreat and I kind of saw more of what, had, what I had cultivated and it was actually hard to measure on the retreat. Um, and I saw that when I went integrated back into the world, I had, I had perspective that I'd never had before. I could see myself getting triggered like I'd never had before and I could let go of my racing mind. Um, 
And suddenly I had capacities I didn't know that I had uh, trained on, on the retreat. And about a year later I thought, well, I haven't found anything else that, that was that honest, so I'll do another one, but um, boy, I hope it doesn't hurt as much as the first. And then I listened a little closer to what the teachers were saying, and I did it a little bit more as they were suggesting. And I was like, oh, actually, there's you know, this breath. It actually does work. It does help untangle my addiction to thought or my being lost in thought. And if it was a little easier, I had a little more faith um, in the process, didn't suffer quite as much. And then in every retreat I've done since then, roughly, I've had a little more faith, a little more perspective. Um, so in some ways, they've gotten easier. Um, compared to that first one where I had just no clue. But there were some very important insights in that first one, and some of them are related to thought, so I thought I would uh, share that. And they're, they're, these are sort of common insights people end up having. I've been raised by very um, uh, progressively left parents. Um, people were very... Um, it was the 70s, and my parents were professors, and they taught a lot about Marxism. So I grew up um, thinking in very progressive terms, and I was good at science, so I was studying science in college. And one of my dear friends um, had done a lot of anti-nuclear testing work. And so for spring break, we went down to the Nevada nuclear test site to protest the underground testing that was still happening back then. We got down there, and it was an amazing scene. It was a 10-day protest, and it was right at the gates where you drive into the modern nuclear test site where over 600 nuclear bombs had been set off, some above ground, and hundreds below ground. And they were still testing at the time. And the Shoshone people, the Native Americans of that area, had combined with the peace activists to create this camp outside the front gate and they were doing ritual and prayer and they were doing teach-ins on how to actually cultivate peace and understanding nuclear bombs come from fear inside or from aggression or when you want to wield that much power. You know, what type of heart and mind needs access to that much destructive power? And how else could we solve problems? And so there was a 10-day training and workshop and prayer um, camp on the other side and then we, we had organized arrests where we'd do civil disobedience at the gate and they would, uh, they would catch us, process us, and release us and we'd come back and do it again. So there's a lot of people getting arrested, learning about nonviolence, about civil disobedience, and then learning about the confusions of the mind, about how suspicion happens, about oppression, about gender oppression, racial oppression, um, all sorts of ways that society has standards and then applies those standards aggressively to people, cause suffering. And we listened to a lot about how uh, Native Americans had suffered tremendously and they came from all over the country to participate in this anti-nuclear testing. And it was just such an eye-opener. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd had progressive politics my whole life, but I'd never seen people put their lives on the line like they were in this nuclear test site. So I had a big awakening that like this is very important. It's not just okay to talk about it and have the beliefs, but I want to I want to put my life on the line for my values here, and being so moved by all the people I saw. And out of the many people, one was um, one of the Native American elders, a guy named Corbin. Um, he did a lot of the prayer and a lot of the services and a lot of the teachings, and he was incredibly moving. 
But where we camped <clears throat> was right next to um, what was called the Quaker village. That's where all the Quakers would, had come and set up their tents and they had a little fire and we heard them singing at night and I'd kind of walk by them and they invite me over to the campfire. Um, so I met these two elderly Quaker women and I'd never met people whose hearts were that gracious and that warm and that steady. And I was with them when they got arrested and I'd never witnessed that before. I saw when we got arrested, we were being defiant. When they got arrested, they were sort of sending prayers to the guard that was walking to them and their big smiles and the guard was like, oh, Mabel and Alice, you're back this year. <laughs> and they're like, ah, oh, Stan, we hope you would be the one to arrest us. And it's like, how are your, how are your kids? And it's like, oh, yeah, they're a year older. And like, how are you? And they'd put the handcuffs on and they'd be walking and it's sort of like, it was like, wow, that's amazing. And it's like, there's no war there. There's this beautiful act. There's respect. And they had solved the small war between the guard and the Quaker women being arrested. And that was, that was a guidance for me. I was like, oh, it's so beautiful. And I tried to do it, but all this fear came up and all this resistance. And I was like, how am I going to get this heart to look like that? That's what I want. I want to be that for the world, for myself. So when I came to the first meditation retreat, I really didn't know what I would expect, but it was a couple of days in that I began to realize this was actually the mechanism that was going to transform my heart. That this was going to be a big part of how um, I was going to evolve my heart and my mind, this mindfulness meditation. Later on, it became so important as I kept practicing um, that I did finally go on a three-month retreat. It took seven years to build that type of capacity and that desire to do it. But then I went on a three-month retreat and I went on another three-month retreat a year later. And I thought, this is so beautiful. I, I'm, there's so much depth that's available here that um, I decided I would uh, ordain. So I went to the country of Burma, now called Myanmar, and I, um, <clears throat> I was going to ordain and I wanted to be an activist monk. So I wanted to do a lot of this type of intensive meditation. But when given the chance, I wanted to go work with uh, homeless populations or the, um, the AIDS epidemic, HIV uh, epidemic was sweeping across Thailand and a lot of monks and nuns were responding to that. I thought, yeah, that's, that would be the perfect life um, for this introvert Olympian <laughs> to... Uh, have time of being reflective, but also time of clearly being of service. And I was a monk for a year and then came back to the States and uh, did more service. I worked a lot with homeless populations and then slowly began to teach people what I had learned um, about stress reduction and how to be present. People were also working in the shelters for homeless uh, teenagers, other frontline activists, uh, nurses, social workers. And slowly realized that that was actually um, I a little bit more of the, my gift was supporting people who were trying to um, engage the world and making sure that this reclusive practice wasn't just us re, uh, unplugging from the world, but unplugging temporarily to clean out the heart and to rest and regroup and then plug it back in very actively to be of service or to help the world heal or change or wake up. So 
So I'd like to talk about thoughts, and I'd also like to just point out a few things before we get to that topic. So another deviation <laughs> before the main topic. One of the things that happens in the middle of retreat is, again, it's very hard to measure your own progress. So what you're going to keep experiencing is a lot of waves. There'll be waves of ease, and then that will pass, and then you'll get tired again, or a struggle will come, and then that will pass, and it'll get easy again. And to you, it feels like it's easy, hard, easy, hard, easy, hard, or maybe hard, 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 easy, hard, 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 easy. <laughs> but there are waves, and they keep coming, and it doesn't actually ever take a particular one form. There's just a lot of variation. And yet the whole time you're here, there's, there's a general depth of practice happening that's hard to measure yourself. And the analogy that worked for me is uh, I used to live next to the Puget Sound, and the, uh, because of all the islands, you don't get a lot of ocean waves deep into the Puget Sound. It can be very, very flat. So you can go out on a boat, and it can be very flat, or the wind can make waves. And that's your personal experience, but then these uh, seven-foot tides come and go. And if you're out on a boat, you don't even know the tide is coming and going. And so, oh, smooth water, rough water, smooth water, and the whole time there's this incredible huge uh, tide rolling in. And so the entire retreat, our entire community, is actually much deeper into meditation than, it's, than you can measure yourself. And we've grown used to it, so we can see it. And over time, you can see it too. And you, um, but until you get that feel for it, you personally feel like, I got it, I lost it, I got it, I lost it, I got it, I lost it, I got it, I lost it. <laughs> and that gets a little tiring, because then you're like, I keep losing it. It's like, no, just keep being here, and the tide is rolling in all the time, and just survive the waves, but the, there's an undeniable tide rolling in, settling into your body, being uh, unagitated by all the stimulation of the world, um, learning to be kind to yourself, this steadily being in this atmosphere, this uh, transformation is happening. And it's just helpful to, to not be too measuring of your success and have a little more faith in that process. Um, you won't drive yourself crazy trying to measure whether you're getting it right or getting or not. If you're here, you're actually getting it right, if you're still here. So mindfulness has been developing. And um, a shorthand for me with mindfulness is just how, how intimate and present am I? How clearly am I seeing what's happening in the present versus being really checked out? So I'm aware of my breath, that's mindfulness. I actually feel one breath. I was there for that breath. I was there for that step. And how many steps in a row, how many breaths in a row? Could I track what was happening? And could I track when my mind was distracted uh, by thought? and I started going on a thought journey. I was with my breath and I heard a sound, and my mind went to the sound, but I saw it happening. We actually see what's happening moment by moment. That's the awakening of mindfulness. We want to be able to see what our mind is actually doing. There's also um, the development, besides mindfulness, of a, a very old Indian world word called samadhi. And samadhi is as the mind is less agitated, the body and the heart are less agitated. There's a little more collectedness, not quite as scattered, not quite as restless. And so even though you're feeling the waves of up and down, there's also been this uh, steadily growing background samadhi. 
collectedness, groundedness, steadiness. And sometimes you have really profound moments like that. That's when practice often feels really delicious because the mind is quiet or the body is still and there's a lot of ease. But even if that wave comes and that wave goes, there's still a background samadhi that's been developing. And uh, it's how the practice keeps deepening. And there's also a development of wisdom. Because you're here, you've all learned how to self-navigate. You all now have some experience under your belt. And so you can see, yeah, the mind wanders, can't really stop it, but you can wake up from the wandering mind, bring it back to your breath, and it's doable. You can't control it, so you relax the need to control, but you also realize you can influence it. So you all have been cultivating your own insight into the meditation practice. That's the developing of wisdom. So every day that you're here practicing, these, uh, at least these three factors have been strengthening your mindfulness, the ability to see what's happening moment by moment, your samadhi, the general collectedness, the non-agitation, and some wisdom developing, some insight in how to do this practice and looking into your own heart and mind and seeing what's going on. And the way that our human minds work, <clears throat> it's very easy for them to be dominated by thought. And you can see this. This is what a lot of us are seeing. We go to put our attention on the breath, and we can only be with a breath for one or two breaths, maybe five or six, and then an amazing 10 breaths in a row. And you're back to one breath, half a breath. So for a lot of people you're working, it's not long before the mind gets caught up in thought. And that's true for everybody in the room. And that's true for everybody doing these practices. So it seems to be a fairly consistent human phenomena that the untrained human mind gets very mesmerized by the thinking process. And then when you go to actually do something else with your attention, you realize that there's a strong tendency to be swept up in thinking. And so that's kind of a common human default setting to be mesmerized and caught up in thought. And it can get so dominant that you can drive through complex traffic, be thinking the entire time, and can't even recall any real tangible event that got you driving from home or all the way to work or riding public transportation and you're just lost in thought the whole time, still making decisions on one level and kind of entranced by whatever your mind is producing, whatever thought trains your mind is producing. So we can get incredibly dominated by the thinking process. And then we come here and we sit in the first day, you know, it, we see how powerful it is. And yet with steady practice over the many hours and days of walking and sitting, guiding your attention back to your breath, back to your steps, we're slowly uh, weakening this dominance of thought, this way of being uh, completely lost in thought. And it tends to go through uh, several stages where the first time you're lost in thought, you have no recall of where you were. You're wandering the entire time and you wake up 20 minutes later and you're like, oh, wait, I'm supposed to be breathing. But time has passed, but you have no recall of where you were. That's how unmindful and kind of checked out in the thinking process. Now with a little more practice, you finally wake up from thinking, but you actually can recall major parts of your thought train. 
it's like, oh yeah, I was just lost in thought and it went to the past, it went to the future, it was about my brother and work and this plan I have. And so you still went on a long ride, but as soon as you wake up and realize you were thinking, there's a little more recall, which means that you were a little more mindful during that wandering mind. And then the next tick up is that <clears throat> you wake up a little sooner to the fact that your mind is wandering. You wander, but it occurs to you a little more quickly, wait, I'm in a wandering mind. I've done this before. The object here is not to be lost in thought. You wake up a little sooner, recommit to your breath or your steps when you're uh, sitting or walking. And so you can actually intercede a little bit sooner on the thoughts. And then maybe a fourth step, which is fairly developed, is the thoughts are no longer that interesting. You're with your breath, you're with your steps. You start to go into a thought. And before you even commit to the thought, it's like, ah, oh, it's just another thought. I don't think I want to take a thought ride right now. I'm going to actually come back, settle into my breath. And another thought is like, yeah, we're not doing thinking right now. Thank you. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's actually nice not to have to go on another thought. No. <laughs> and so they still pull you, but you release more quickly and you come back. And maybe a fifth step is where you're actually with your breath or your steps or you're really into the soup <laughs> at dinner and you're tasting it. And there may be thoughts, but they're actually not pulling on you, not demanding that you go on a thought ride. And so then you're actually, it's a little easier to be present with something simple like soup <laughs> and then something simpler like a step and then finally something simpler, like a breath, a simple breathing process, finally can hold your attention. That's quite an actual development of mindfulness and samadhi, that the breathing process itself can sustain your attention uh, with a little bit more ease. And that wave happens and you feel some ease and then a struggle comes over again, you get tired or restless. That's just how it progresses. It goes through chances where you actually feel it's a little easier to practice and then it's a little more difficult. As Sarah described, these hindrances come. And luckily they pass. And then you drop in a little bit more. So the first movement in all of our meditation practice is to break this original habit of being lost and mesmerized by the thinking process as if the thoughts were realities. We can relate the thought, and we often do, that the thought we're having is actually a reality. This was one of my first insights on my first meditation retreat. I was 21 and I was in this big power struggle with my parents. Um, and my mom was saying, you know, I'm willing to pay for your college, but you have to become the doctor I've always wanted you to be. It's like, I don't want to become the doctor you always wanted me to be. <laughs> I, I have other aspirations. And so we we're in this, I was in this powerful struggle for my own uh, identity, my own choice, uh, my own intuition. Um, but I spent hours and hours and hours trying to argue with her in my mind. And whatever I was doing, there'd be this old background argument. And I would rehearse them so that whenever I'd see her again, I could win the argument. But the argument I perfected on Thursday wasn't that available on Sunday and I'd have to go back and like, okay, it didn't quite come out like I wanted it to. Next time when she says this, I gotta remember to say that and I'm gonna get my freedom, but I really thought I had to get it from her. Um, 
And if I couldn't, that meant I was limited. And I went to school 3,000 miles away from my mom and my dad. I grew up in Rhode Island. I went to school in Portland, Oregon, just to get you know, several time zones and mountain ranges and <laughs> the, the prairies, just to kind of give myself some break. But even with my toes in the water leaning out over the Pacific, I was still struggling in my mind with this argument with my parents. And so I came to the first meditation retreat, and I was like, oh good, nine days to just think. <laughs> I want to be quiet. I'm going to sit there, and I'm going to perfect every argument, rehearse it, and then I'm going to give them this like, incredible argument, and they will be speechless. <laughs> I was rehearsing them, and I get tired, and I forget. And the next day, I was like, what did I think yesterday? And I remember my, I was like, and they were like, Don't. return to your breath, return to your breath. I'm like, no, 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 I I'm, I'm finally got it. I finally got the <laughs> argument I've always wanted to deliver to like, stand on my freedom. And the teacher was talking, and I was kind of half listening. <laughs> It's like, yeah, 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 Buddhism, what a, yeah. <laughs> and, and I was listening well enough when the teacher said, you know, the thought of your mother is not your actual mother. And he was saying it to the entire room. And he might as well slap me across the face. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like slow down, wait, what? <laughs> the thought of my mother is not my actual mother? <laughs> Wait, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. That's amazing. <laughs> I'm thinking about my mother. I'm not actually winning an actual argument. So all that energy, I can just pop it like a soap bubble and it's solved. Like it's just thought. It was, and I was just like, is anybody else listening to this? <laughs> this shit is brilliant. And I'm like, wait, 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 you're actually saying some really interesting stuff. And I actually started listening more closely. I'm like, I'm not actually winning real arguments. I'm, I'm lost in thought. And if I go back to my breath, the whole thing evaporates. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's revelatory. And I started practicing it, like, pop, <laughs> pop, this is great. Like, wow, I'm, I'm free. I just go back to my breath and the chains come off. I don't actually have to win this one. And I don't actually have to go back to my poor mom and deliver these rehearsed speeches, <laughs> trying to extract some type of freedom for her that she doesn't know how to give. I just pop the bubble and then have tea with my mom, <laughs> which I did afterwards. And she was so grateful. It's like, whatever you did on that retreat, I would like you to do more of that because <laughs> I wasn't battling her as much. And I began to see other things, like other realities that I had internalized and then lived as if they were real just because they happened to feel very real inside of me. And I began to gain more and more insight. That thought on one level kind of maps our reality, and we can treat it with, with some seriousness because it's not totally inaccurate. But there was this new option that had never occurred to me, that the activity of thought was just the activity of thought. And it has n not necessarily more substance than the sound of crickets at night. You hear crickets, that's what the ear is doing, it's picking up sound. You have a human mind, and it rummages through concepts, it produces concepts. 
A working human mind produces concepts like a working human mouth produces saliva. It's just kind of what minds produce. They produce concepts. They sing songs. They remember songs. You can't turn the songs off. You can't shut down the jukebox sometimes. That's what the mind wants to do. It's listening. It hears. It rehearses what it knows. And it plays songs. It goes through arguments. It remembers the past. It plans the future. That's what a working mind does. Unlike sound and unlike sight, sight is always immediate, sound is always immediate. The interesting thing about thoughts is that they do somewhat recollect the past and they do somewhat anticipate the future. So even though they're happening in the present, they have an extra dimension to them, which is that they have a usefulness that might not be about the present. Whereas sights and sounds and tastes and body sensations are always actually much more immediate. Even though the thought is happening in the present, there can be a utility about recollecting and remembering and learning from the past or thinking and planning a future. So that's why it's tricky or with thoughts because they're happening in the moment, but they map on to the present, they map on to the past, they map on to the future. But the first thing we have to do is actually gain freedom in relationship to thought, which is why the first several days there's this very strong coaching and practice to keep returning to the breath, keep returning to the body, get the proportions back where you're not dominated by thought, where you actually can feel your breath, where you can taste your food, where you can uh, hear, you can see in the present. And then when you get the proportions right, Thought is just another part of the flow of your current experience. And just like you can attend sounds, and you can turn your attention away from sounds, you can turn your attention towards thought, and you can turn your attention away from thought. It starts to actually have some choice around it, not being dominated by it. So that's, the, that's one of the first trainings. And as we keep training, because the, the addiction to thought and the being mesmerized and seduced by thought is so strong, you can practice for the rest of your life and there always will be some need to further free ourselves from the way that thoughts enchant us, the way that thoughts pull our attention and start to define, overly define our reality. So even when I did very long retreats, you know, three month retreats, and it was a, I was practicing for a year in Burma I came back and I did a nine-month retreat in Massachusetts. Um, I was still contending with the way my mind would produce thoughts and they'd be very compelling. And I'd be like, oh my God, when is it going to stop producing all these enchanting thoughts? And slowly learning, well, that's what the mind does. Can I learn to live with the fact that thoughts are arising? Can I gain some type of wise relationship to the fact that thoughts are occurring? I want to underscore that again, that <clears throat> it's an amazing thing about thought that viewed one way, it's no more substantial than the chirping of crickets. So as our mindfulness develops, we can see that thought is just vibrations in the mind. It's some images, it's some concepts, just arising, popping, crackling, changing, you know, the images keep changing, the soundtrack keeps changing, the inner dialogue keeps changing. It's like, oh, it's just activity that's happening here and now. 
viewed one way. Thought is as uh, ephemeral and as quick and as light as the crickets at night. When I experience another way, thoughts can harden, they can solidify, and they can feel incredibly real, and they can actually define a reality that you live in. So if you really uh, put your thoughts together and they harden, and if it's about the past, the past feels incredibly real. Your thoughts about the past can feel very real, or your thoughts about the future can be very real, can be experienced as if they're very real. So it's a funny thing about that. The other senses don't do that. Uh, sound doesn't do that. Um, body sensations don't do that so much, but thought can be very light and also can be very dense and can create a sense of reality. And what we wanna do is be able to work skillfully with thought and one skillful action of thought is being able to pull out of them, to release them, to not let them solidify and uh, develop that capacity. We can also start turning towards thought. And a couple days in, this starts to be more possible. So it's one of the ways that our practice develops is around day three or four, we can actually intentionally look at the thinking process. And this is where you can see thought for what it is. You have enough mindfulness to glimpse the activity of thinking and really witness It's an activity that's happening here and now. Thoughts will arise. For all of you right now, there's a thought that hasn't arisen. And if we wait long enough, it will. Some thought will arise. You can witness that. You can be mindful of that. Like right now, I don't hear the crickets. They haven't arisen yet. But when the conditions are right, the crickets start playing. And when the conditions are right, your mind starts producing whatever the next train of thought is. And that becomes fascinating. It becomes sort of like um, you're watching your breath, but you open up the option now. Like, I'm gonna actually study thought. You sit there, got your popcorn ready. You're like, where am I gonna go next? Like, I'm with my breath. Yeah, I'm still with my breath. And it's ancient Egypt, wow. (laughs) how did they build those pyramids? Like, well, okay, okay, let that go. Now we're back with the breath. Where are we going to go next? It's like, I wonder how, like, oh, now we're over here. That's really interesting. Let that go. Like, where's the mind going to take me next? It's like, straw bale houses. That's so cool. It's like, okay, let go of the straw bale houses. Where are we going to go next? And you see, like, the mind just keeps producing fascinating thoughts. Some of them are horrifying and scary. Some of them are really boring and uh, common, and some of them are really creative and mesmerizing. And you let them all go, and where are we gonna go next? Where are we gonna go next? And it becomes kind of a fascinating mindfulness exploration to just sit there eating your imaginary popcorn and watch the mind think and produce thought. And I watched it for um, all told, if I put all my retreats together, I've done intensive days of meditation like this for two and a half years and I haven't come to the end of thought. It's like, really? You're going to come up with another idea? And it's like, oh, no, no, listen to this one. <laughs> really? What's it going to be? It's like, uh, follow me on this one. I'm like, another thought train. It's like, solar-powered, 
straw bale house monasteries that are free and we grow our own food. It's like, wow, that's so creative. That's great. Let it go. Come back to the breath. It's like, okay, now we're all living underwater this time and we got, we're growing kelp and we've turned away to get the oxygen. We're like, that's so brilliant. Wow, look at you. Okay, back to the breath. It's like, it's been at this for months now. Are you really going to come up with another enthralling thought? Like, yeah, yeah. How about this? Did you know that an atom works this way and that way? And it's like, wow, you're so brilliant. Look at you, mind. You just keep, you keep thinking. It's amazing. Wow, you are so impressive. <laughs> and it just keeps doing that. And after a while, you grow a capacity. It's like, yep, that's what it does. My ears work so they hear. My tongue works so it tastes, and my mind works so it creates thoughts. So that's turning towards thoughts. It's intentionally studying the thinking process, and then back to training to not get enthralled by thoughts, back to feeling the body, developing body awareness. The more we are embodied, one of the interesting things is the more we are embodied, the more our thoughts actually tend to be uh, of service. So one of the great things about helping the thinking process end up being more of an ally is to actually train with more body awareness. And I've seen that for a lot of people and seen that for myself. The more breath awareness I have, the more I'm actually down in my body. When my mind goes to actually produce thoughts, they tend to be much more useful. Another uh, <clears throat> great thing about um, thoughts, another interesting thing to study about them is that they often are very influenced by the emotions that are present. And so sometimes you don't know that you're in a particular mood or emotion. You're in it, but you haven't yet become aware of it. So you're sad, or you're angry, or you're really happy, but you haven't quite become mindful of it yet. So you're experiencing the emotion on one level, but you're not really that conscious of it. But one of the ways you can tell what type of emotions are present are by the types of thoughts that that mind is producing. So if the heart is happy, it produces happy thoughts. And it's like, I wonder what emotion I'm having. It's like, I can't quite tell. But boy, I want to go to the beach. I want to throw a ball for a dog. I want to bring my friends. Oh, I think there's happiness present. It's very easy to have these happy thoughts. And it's like, oh yeah, that's a happy heart and mind. It produces happy thoughts. It can also help when there are uh, more struggling emotions, when there's um, something happening but you're not that aware of it. And you can't quite tell what's happening, but if you look at the type of patterns of thoughts that are happening, that might clue you into the emotions that are present. So it can be a bit of a clue if you're not totally clear on whatever emotion there is. So again, <clears throat> I, I now like humans as much as dogs, but when I was in college, <laughs> I really like, I trusted dogs a lot more than humans. Um, so I was sitting on this retreat uh, early on, and I was kind of like judging everybody, and I was kind of like, I was kind of grumpy and hating on everybody, but not that aware of it. I was so used to it that I was like, yeah, it's kind of accurate. And like, there's so-and-so, I, I got you figured out, and I got you figured out. And not that mindful of it. It's just like, yep. What's to do with mindful of? It's all accurate. And I'm just sitting there kind of, pissed off at everybody. And then they had the windows open <clears throat> and I heard the, the bell on a collar of a dog of, from one of the neighbors. And it was coming around to smell the flowers. And the bell was kind of irritating. And I was like, 
I'm kind of irritated. Everybody but now I'm irritated with this dog. And why is it here? Why do the neighbors keep it? And like, we got to figure out this dog because the bell's trying to drive me crazy. And it's like, you usually like dogs. Why are you so like stressed out about this dog? It's like, yeah, you're right. That's not typical of me. I think I'm angry. <laughs> like, oh yeah, I'm so angry that even the dog I'm critical of, oh, that actually showed me. I was like, let's look back. I was like, oh yeah, this heart is actually kind of angry. And I caught it on the dog, but I can see I've been doing that to all the people in the room. But the dog hadn't come by, I wouldn't have really known. So the way that my mind was working was reflective of the type of emotions that were present. But it would have been hard for me to really guess at that, at that stage of my practice. It's taken a while to really be mindful of the, the emotions. But one of the ways I first started cluing into them was the, the types of thoughts that were arising. And then thought and emotion can reinforce each other. So you might have a particular emotion of uh, loving kindness arise in your heart, and then it begins to produce uh, thoughts of admiration and um, appreciation of people. And the more those thoughts kind of hold your attention, the more they actually welcome the beautiful qualities that relate to the thoughts. And that's actually what we're doing with loving kindness practice or the forgiveness practice. We have certain words, certain images, and we use those words and images which are in the realm of thought to help welcome certain emotions forward like forgiveness or loving kindness or patience. And so because they're, because they're really uh, influence each other, by changing the thoughts, you sometimes can change the emotions associated with them. And sometimes when you have a really dominant strain of thought and you keep trying to release the thought, what's actually happening is you have an underlying emotion behind the thought. So if you have an underlying emotion of fear, you can keep trying to let go of the thoughts, but because the fear is present, it keeps producing fearful thoughts. So if you start having thought trains that are very hard to release and seem really insistent, rather than working just on the thought level of trying to release all these thoughts, you might say, what, would, what type of emotion would drive these thoughts? I wonder if that's present. And then you might see there is an unexamined fear or love or happiness that's making those thoughts so persistent. And this is something, it's not a belief system. You actually can do this research yourself and look at your own heart and your own mind and see if it's true for you. See this relationship between thought and emotion and how they reinforce each other. And then seeing it in process, it helps you intervene if a particular strain of thought isn't that helpful or a particular emotion feels like it's troubling and it's not, it's not helping you you might be able to, to change those by changing one or the other because the thought and the mind are arising, the thought and the emotion are arising in the same mind. So they have that relationship and you can explore that. One thing I learned again back after uh, my first or second retreat is I used to suffer, suffer from a little bit of anxiety that would lead to insomnia. And if I woke up between one and six o'clock, I'd be too tired to really wake up but just awake enough to worry. And uh, I'd be worrying about tests and papers and responsibilities. And then I began to see like, that's not productive time to be thinking. And it never was. And so I, I developed a, um, a vow to myself that between 1 a.m. and 6 a.m. I'm not gonna take any thought seriously. And so I just look at the clock and it's like, if this is really important, it'll be important at six o'clock and I'm gonna wait till six o'clock to take this thought seriously. 
the world's going to end. You're going to drop out of college. You don't have a future. Yeah, tell me that at 6 a.m. Don't tell me that at 3 a.m. At 3 a.m., I'm, I'm too defenseless. To, so I began just like, not now. I don't believe you. Not now. I don't believe you. If you're true, you'll be true at 6 o'clock. I don't believe you right now. And then usually the sun would rise, and I'd be like, yeah, a lot of that stuff was just because I was tired. Now the sun's rising, I have a lot more perspective. That was helpful just with, uh, at times, being able to say, I don't trust these thoughts. I'm not going to act on them. I can see through them. A few tips about working with thought is that if you have a repetitive thought, sometimes it's helpful to give it a little tag to help you be conscious that that trend is happening. So um, <clears throat> I used to be a physicist and a little bit of an engineer. And so I have a train of thought that's really common for this particular mind. How does that work? And so I have engineer mind. And so my mind will be breathing and then it'll, it's easy to let go of a lot of different thoughts. But I really love the, how does that work? And so that's one way I leave the present all the time as my mind tries to figure out, how does that work? And I'm off on a thought train. So I've heightened my attention that if I'm trying to figure out something mechanical, I can pretty much let that go and come back to the breath. I already know that that's not what I'm here to do. Or arguing with loved ones. You know, here's that argument, trying to win an argument. I also have time travel. I'm giving you a few of my, <laughs> a few of my uh, tags. It's just one thing that this mind loves to do is it loves to time travel back and change something and then see what would have happened if that was different. So I often go back and you know, I, the, I'm, this, this mind is a little bit obsessed with the JFK assassination. So like, what if I blocked the bullet? What would have happened then? And then what would have happened then? And everybody's obsessed with this. There's all these movies about you know, the JFK assassination. And so I, it's one of the things. I, I start sliding down this one. I can let go of a lot of thoughts, but my thought goes into the JFK assassination <laughs> and how to prevent it and how do you time travel back and would I have been born? And then that whole time loop kind of thing is like a oh, temple. <laughs> I know this one. This is time travel. <laughs> Until you have the machine... It's not really worth your time. So <laughs> build the machine and then we'll talk about time travel. <laughs> Until then, it's just empty thought. I also have lottery thought, you know, like when they, what would I do if I won the lottery? Or, you know, like, I wonder what's, what's going to happen 10 years from now? Like, uh, ungrounded futurizing and trying to figure stuff out. Or, um, you know, going back to the election and seeing if I could make it come out differently. Or <laughs> whatever, my, whatever my particular passions are, I have time travel mind. Um, I also have hurt mind, I have um, annoyed with my housemate mind. Uh, I have all these particular trends that I've learned and I've mapped out. Um, it's just good to heighten uh, your awareness of whatever your trends are, whatever your top five trends are, and give them little, little pet names because they're probably going to be around for a while. But you want to heighten your awareness of them so you clue on quicker that your mind is starting to get in, uh, enchanted by a particular... Uh, thought train. <clears throat> I have annoyed with the housemate, which is a little bit generic because I've lived collectively since I was 18, so I know about you know getting annoyed. But there's fork in the sink, mind. <laughs> and I walk around, I was like, oh, fork in the sink. <laughs> yep. Somebody has to wash their fork. Someone hasn't washed their fork yet. Yep. Leaving the fork for me. Yep. I have to wash their fork. I'm not washing their fork. <laughs> That's their fork. 
note to self, do not wash that fork. That is their fork. I am not here to wash their fork. It's like, yeah, this is fork mind. You can let go of the fork mind. You can let go of the dishes accumulating in the sink and the type of obsession that your mind does about kitchen's not clean. So I've, I've learned that my mind has these tendencies. Time travel, straw bale house monasteries, uh, <laughs> annoyed with housemates around dishes, um, rehashing old arguments, prehashing fu- future arguments. Um, time, yeah, you just end up mapping them out because you're with you. You're with you for hours a day. And you just get to know, this is, this is, these are the trends in my mind. And I want to be conscious when they're happening, because if you're not, the trends in your mind will likely gain momentum, and then they create a reality. And before you know it, this poor innocent housemate sees me, and I'm coming at them with like hours of this rehearse, like, you have to do your dishes, they've been accumulating. They're like, huh? <laughs> like, what are we talking about? Like, where'd this come from? And it's like, yeah. And it's like just my own mind creating a reality, stressing under it, and then feeling as if it was real, and then feeling very justified to dump all that stress on this person because I've been working up a thought storm inside me as if it was real. And so to me, we've been at this for weeks. <laughs> but the poor housemate, they're like, wait, what? Like, wow, where is this coming from? And I didn't realize when I was younger that I was having an internal experience that was very real to me but had not been experienced by anybody else but me. <laughs> and so when I began to dialogue on it, it had been an old relationship with a lot of pressure built up. And for the poor person that was getting it, it was day one, <laughs> it was like hour one of the conversation. And for me, it was months of accumulated stress over an internal thought world. So that's what this practice has offered, is, is an ability to see through these trends, to get perspective on them, to withdraw from the ones that are not productive and really withdraw from all of them. And then you can re-engage and you have some perspective. These are actually helpful thoughts. These thoughts map on well. These thoughts organize my, my reality well. They keep me, you know, I can show up on time. And the reason I actually can show up on time is I have enough thought to say, oh look, it's time to actually walk up the hill. That's useful thought. So thought can actually be a great ally I'm grateful for thought. Thought is actually behind speech. If we didn't have thought, we wouldn't have communication on this level. So in some ways, thought's beautiful. Thought, you can convey your love for somebody through words and through thought. You feel it inside, you you understand it inside. You communicate and somebody hears it and they understand what you're saying because it generates thought inside, concepts inside. Our language is the realm of thought. Song is the realm of thought and also music. So it's very beautiful, but we want to have choice over it. And that's what we're practicing. And so now we have two options. And the weighted option for the retreat is still to work with your body. The weighted option is still release thoughts because we need a lot of, repl- a lot of practice not being mesmerized by thoughts and gaining some capacity to be free in relationship to thought. So still while we're here for the rest of the night and for the rest of the retreat, please, the predominance of your practice really should be returning to your breath, returning to your feet, and letting go of all the ways the thought seduces us. But you now have another option, which is at times 
to turn consciously towards thought and say, you're like the crickets, you're happening. What's going on in my thoughts? I don't only have to turn away from them. I can towards towards them and see them as activity happening here and now and gain some, some wisdom, some insight into the activity of thought. And then later on, practice again, turning back towards the body. And that back and forth, body towards thought, back to the body, you start to gain perspective, some awareness of thought. And uh, awareness of thought and awareness of emotion is uh, incredibly important as humans for us to navigate actual reality versus getting caught in uh, thought loops. So with that, um, why don't we let these words settle a little bit? We'll just sit for a little while. Um, You don't have to change your posture because we won't be sitting that long unless you'd like to. without being strict on your mind, you can invite it to relax. You might take a few deep breaths and remind yourself where your body is. And you find your body through the experience of sensations. You find your body through the experience of breathing. And by now the crickets have come out So along with the body, there's the arising of sound. And the more we're generally grounded in the experience of sound or the body or breath, we can also be aware that thoughts arise as images, internal sounds, an inner dialogue. At times we can take interest in these facets of thought. Being mindful of the content. Being mindful of the activity, the process of thinking. 
And then after a time, returning to a simple experience like hearing our body or the breath. Further develop that present time awareness. May you enjoy this exploration. about a half hour for walking and then one final sit for the evening. Mm -hmm. 